We have uh, been walking through the Gospel of John. This is uh, week 19 of actually being in the, the Gospel. We've uh, taken some, some detours through holidays and things. Uh, and today will be kind of a shift because we're going we're gonna to kind of close out the, the public ministry of Jesus. And uh, what we'll head into starting next week is the, the upper room, the, the, the teachings to the disciples, and then we'll uh, head towards uh, Easter with the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, uh, the resurrection. And so we'll be closing out the Gospel of John over the next several months. Uh, but we, when we started this, we, we called this The Curtain Goes Up because the Gospel of John was acted out in the ancient theater. It was a way for them to teach the truth of John's Gospel. And it is these, if you've noticed, it's these little scenarios, these little scenes where it's like the curtain goes up, uh, people come out on the stage, and there is dialogue, and there's drama, and there's all these things that have been acted out in front of us. And we get to see these little snippets of Jesus's interaction with different people. And so the curtains open, and then they close. And, you know, sometimes we are we meet people along this journey and we wonder, what happened to that person? You know, like um, Nicodemus, who comes by night, who's a member of the Sanhedrin. I wonder, wonder what happened with Nicodemus after that. I wonder what happened to the woman at the well. I wonder what happened with the man that would have been born blind. And there are all these little interactions. And uh, the, the focal point of John is that People are making decisions based off of those encounters with Jesus about how they're going to receive him, how they're going to, to interact with him further, what, what's going to happen. And John, in his gospel, in his telling, he, has, uh, f- he takes four great episodes and four great festivals, and he kind of builds everything around them uh, to, to tell what he wants to tell. Um, as you see on the screen, we have the wedding at Cana in chapter 2. Uh, Jesus talks about the temple and also in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, you have Nicodemus and kind of a, a contrast to Nicodemus, who's the ultra-religious person. Then you've got the woman at the well in chapter 4. Um, the wedding at Cana, if you will remember that, Jesus had made uh, from scratch considerable amount of wine, which was symbolic of the coming of the Messiah. And then he goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple out. Those who are trying to make money off people needing to buy things to sacrifice. And he basically is saying he is the new temple. And then Nicodemus is in encounter and the woman at the well, it's about what are you going to do with what you find in Jesus? Uh, Nicodemus comes at night and has this interaction with Jesus. We don't really know until after Jesus is uh, crucified, some of Nicodemus's response, but the woman at the well goes back and tells her entire village that she's encountered the Christ. And there are people who follow Jesus after their interaction, and then there are people who become angry with him. And then John takes us through these four festivals. He takes us through Sabbath, which they were supposed not to work. And Jesus is accused of working because he heals someone. And there's quite a lively discussion. And Jesus says, look, Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he takes us through Passover. Uh, He feeds the multitudes. 
And everyone is talking about Moses and how great Moses is. And Jesus says that he's the bread of life. And he is uh, there to fulfill the Passover that they are actually celebrating. And then tabernacles, uh, they are desperate for water. They've been in a drought and uh, they've just been through this uh, really difficult season of the change of seasons. And he says that he is the light of the world and he has living water. And then we get to Hanukkah, which isn't talked a lot, you know, about in scripture, but you know, people celebrate it. It's the dedication of the temple, the rebuilding. And there has been this amazing betrayal and loss of leadership. And we talked about Ezekiel 34 and how uh, Jesus condemned the shepherds of Israel because they only took care of themselves. They, they weren't loving on nurturing, protecting their people. And Jesus makes that astonishing statement that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And so Jesus disrupts their festivals But all of those festivals he takes and he reminds them that they all point to him. Now, there is this shift that happened in John 10. We didn't really talk about it at the point we were going through it. But John 10, 40, it says, Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days, and there he stayed, and many people came to him. Before we got to 11 and 12, there was this shift where Jesus kind of exits the stage of being fully in public, he heads to Bethany. And that's what we've talked about the last several weeks in chapter 11 and 12. We find about Jesus's uh, upcoming death because John is wanting to know how we are going to respond to Jesus. What do we think about the story of Jesus? If If we were there during any of those festivals, if we were there during any of those things, how would we view Jesus? How do we view Jesus today? And there's all kinds of opinions and thoughts about Jesus. Oh, he was a nice man. He was a prophet. He was a good teacher. He was sort of like all the other religious nuts out there. And There's all these crazy opinions that people have about Jesus. Now, John tells us why he wrote in John 20, 30, and 31. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John doesn't leave us to be in mystery about why he wrote. He is writing and he is showing us what he's showing us so that we will know who Jesus is. Um, we can get caught up in a lot of things. But if we're not caught up in making sure people know who Jesus is, then we're wasting our time. Because we can teach people a lot of things, and you can tell all the things people that what they can do and what they can't do. And ultimately, that's not going to mean anything if they don't know who Jesus is. Because Jesus is not a law. Jesus is a person we're in relationship with. Somebody could tell you, you have to do this. It's the law. That's going to tempt you to not do it. Kind of like the speed limit sign that says 55 on 49. That's just a temptation of how fast can I go and get away with it. Kind of like 80. And so what John wants to know is that if we were there during any of these interactions, any of these scenes with Jesus, how would... How would we respond? What would we have become if we had been there? Would we be a grumbler? Would we have found things to nitpick and argue about? Not that anybody in the religious world do that today. 
Would we have become a complainer? A cynic? Would we be known for our skepticism and our cynicism? Would we become a fan? Or possibly would we have still become a follower? Now, the final public appearances of Jesus happen in John 11 and 12. Okay, and we've already looked at most, we've looked at all of 11 and some of 12. Uh, Lazarus is raised from the dead in chapter 11. Uh, Jesus finds, hears that Lazarus is sick. He waits, he gets there. Lazarus has already been put in the tomb. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus shows up in John 11 talking about death and resurrection. And then later on in chapter 11, the council, the Jewish council says, look, we got to do something about this guy, Jesus. He's causing trouble everywhere and people are leaving our way of life and following after him. So they condemn him to death. And then in chapter 12, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus have Jesus back in their home, I guess kind of a celebration of Lazarus being back among the living. And Mary gets up, and we talked about this, and she extravagantly pours love out on Jesus by anointing him with with nard. And nard is a burial spice that comes from the the base of the Himalaya mountains, and spice caravans would, would bring it, and it's extremely expensive, and it's very fragrant. And yet, once again, we find ourselves with this theme in, in John 12 of death. Lazarus raised from the dead, death. Council condemns Jesus, death. Mary anoints Jesus' death. And then we have the story of the triumphal entry. We're going to skip that for just a second. And then in, later in chapter 12, we, we hear about these Greeks arriving on the scene, and it says that, that they, they wanted to, to see Jesus, and Jesus makes some statements about himself that are di- directly connected with his death. Now, don't miss this, because John is always giving us clues that aren't always easy to see, but the last five public interactions of Jesus, he's dealing with the issue of death. If you jump back towards the triumphal entry, you know, um, there are all these things that, that Jesus interacts with people and he makes these statements. And inevitably in these interactions, people become confused about not only who Jesus is, but what Jesus is about. And sometimes, you know, when we get confused, we say things that are not really all that smart. Like, you know, they're actually kind of stupid. Um, like uh, a sweet lady left her phone here the other night and Michelle Clow had it and we were discussing how we're going to get this phone. And I said, well, just call the number. And she goes, Craig, I have the phone. She's not going to hear it. <laughs> Hi, I'm blonde. My name's Craig. No offense to all the blondes. I'm kind of bald too. So it's, you know. <laughs> But you know, that, that stuff happens. Uh, in John chapter 3, verse 4, Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus says, look, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus says, um, uh, um, how can someone be born when they are old? And, and Nicodemus says, surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb. Clueless. Uh, I mean, you know, you think, okay, wait, he, he, I'm a grown man and you want me to do what? Jesus is talking to one of the religious leaders of the day that was so very familiar with transformation and life change and mikvah. Mikvah is the word where we get our baptism from. It it means living water. It means 
Something powerful is happening. The audience gets it because we're, we're watching this story and we're going, no, moron, that's not what he's saying. But the character on stage that we, we watch often doesn't get what Jesus is up to. Uh, in John 11, 49 and 50, Caiaphas is the high priest that year. He says, who was the high priest, spoke up and said, you know nothing at all because they want to put Jesus to death. He says, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And you go, yeah, you're right, but you're really wrong. Um, Caiaphas is thinking, if we cause some problems here, the Romans are going to come in and they are going to start killing people. It's better that we throw Jesus at them and say, he's the one that's causing all the problems. He's stirring up the people. You kill him, all the problems will go away. And yet, Caiaphas is right because it is better that one man die for the people because only one can die and save people from their sin. So John is giving us all these little clues, all these little insider things that we just read through and we don't always get. John 8, 48. Aren't we right, the Jews answered Jesus and said, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Now that statement is not made anywhere else in any scripture at all. And then 8, 12 When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. They are celebrating a festival that is all about light. And Jesus is basically saying, look, you're looking for fireworks. I'm the firework that you need and want. If you really want light that's going to last, light that can show you the way home, here I am. And so Jesus speaks in things that we would see kind of as, man, why did he say it like that? But they should know and they miss it altogether. John wants us to, John wants to know how we as an audience are going to respond. How are we responding today to what we see about Jesus? Now, not really shifting gears, but kind of following that thought, there are usually three types of people in all movements, okay? There are usually three types of people in all movements. There are those who are opponents. You know, they're just against it. They're against it for a lot of reasons. They're against it because it's new. It's untested. They don't like it. They don't want it. They don't need it. They're just against it. Then there are those who are the fans. The the fans are the ones that buy the t-shirt. They can always show you a t-shirt they bought about something. It doesn't say that they're necessarily in. It just says they bought the T-shirt so they could say, hey, look, I got the T-shirt. They're, they're kind of trend followers. The latest fad, they jump on it, they ride it for a while, and then they go, eh, yeah, I don't like that. And usually fans always have an agenda. They're always in it for themselves, for something. And then there's what we'll call the true believers. That's the people that look into it, they invest it, they give their life to it. And true believers very seldom, if ever, walk away from it. Because they've tried it, they've tested it, they've looked into it, and their life has been forever changed, and they walk in it. The opponents could also be called the outsiders of the movement. The Fans could be called those on the margins. They, they kind of have one foot in, one foot out. They're waiting to see what's in it for them. And then the insiders of the movement are the ones that understand the movement the best. 
They're the ones that that have seen. They're the ones that have heard. They're the ones that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Jesus had all three of those groups. There are those on the periphery, and they're not sure that they're going all in. And you think about those last events that we talked about in Jesus's life and Jesus's public ministry in chapters 11 and 12, the anointing in Bethany at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, those are insiders. Those are people that love Jesus, but they don't just love Jesus because he's their friend. They buy into his mission. We don't read anywhere in chapter 11 or 12 where they say, look, Jesus, if you go back to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. Italy's a nice place to visit this time of year. You really ought to go there. You have the triumphal entry, which we'll look at a little bit today. And that was instituted by fans. That was instituted by people who had an agenda. And then you have this thing of the arrival of the Greeks. Their fans are outsiders, but many of them want to become followers. And we'll talk about that. In John chapter 12, Jesus is anointed by nard. And I told you it comes from the Himalayans very fragrant. It's, it's not just that they love Jesus, but they've embraced him and his mission. Their conversation could have directed him to somewhere else other than Jerusalem if they didn't embrace his mission. They don't impose their agenda on Jesus. They're followers, they're disciples. They, they place on his body burial spices. Now, probably a conversation not too pleasant is, is people of that day didn't bathe every day. Kind of like 11 and 12-year-olds today. (laughs) At least my three boys. When Jesus was arrested and he was stripped of his garments and he was beaten, he was still covered in the scent, the aroma of the nard. When he went to the cross, the smell of the burial spices would have been probably overwhelming because they would have, she would have poured it on Jesus. You see, though she was criticized by Judas, who was a thief, John tells us, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Mary and Martha have experienced resurrection in the life of their brother. And because Jesus had spoken to them and told them he was the resurrection and the life, she's preparing him, whether she fully realizes it or not, to go to the cross, to die for us, to be raised for us. And she is anointing him with a fragrance that's going to remind people, this is the guy that took our punishment. This is the guy that while he was being beaten was putting off the aroma of death, but yet he's back alive. We'll come back to the triumphal entry in a minute. Look with me at John 12. We'll jump into this text, starting in verse 17. Y'all didn't know you were coming to get a wrap-up history lesson, did you? Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone 
after him and the whole world literally had but that doesn't we you know we're we're thinking oh you know he was in russia and ice no 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 the whole world the jews and the gentiles jews and the gentiles notice where john goes after john doesn't waste words by the way verse 20 now there were some greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival they came to philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. So Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus, and Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, death, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. This is strange, because we've not heard anything from John about the Greeks for 11 chapters. He's been dealing with Jews, Samaritans. And now all of a sudden, they're on center stage. They've watched, they've listened, they've observed, and now they want to see the real Jesus. They're not fans looking for a spectacle. They're not looking for some miracle and sideshow. They're Greeks that are really wanting to meet the real Messiah. And here's kind of a a little secret about John's gospel. And he's done this all the way through. We just don't, we we haven't talked about it and we don't look for it. Every time someone is a disciple, John lets us know that they see Jesus. 17, 17 times in the gospel of John, he uses that phrase. Let me show you a couple of them. John 1, 38 and 39. Turning around, Jesus saw two disciples of John the Baptist following and asked, what do you want it? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? What does he say? Come and you will see. Your eyes are going to be open. They just don't follow. They really want to see who he is. John 1 46, Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked, what does Philip say? Come and see. John 9, 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. In other words, those who have all this religious confidence in their self and their ability to make it themselves, they're going to be blind. But those who want to really see and have the help of Jesus in their life, they're all of a a sudden going to see clearly. In chapter 12, verse 20, those Greeks says, we wish to what? See Jesus. They're not looking for the next trick that he's going to do. They want to encounter him. The Greeks who want to see Jesus. The anointing of Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, true followers. The Greeks are fans. They're people on the periphery who want to go to the next level. They want to step in. 
Now let's deal with the triumphal entry. John 12, 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now this is the same word that is in Psalm 118, all except that last line. Blessed is the king of Israel. That's not in Psalm 118. It says, verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written in Zechariah 9, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Verse 16, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, you got the scene. We've talked, you've been to Palm Sunday services where Jesus comes riding in on a colt and people take palm branches and they're waving and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're saying in Aramaic, come save us, save us, save us. But what do they want saving from? They call him the king of Israel. They're, they're quoting Psalm 118, but they add a line to it that's not there King of Israel. Zechariah 9 that they also quote, they take a a line out of Zechariah 9 because in Zechariah 9, it says that the one who comes on a donkey will come in humility, but they take that part out. Why? Because they don't want a humble king. They want a warring king. They want that power that they've witnessed change things, do the miraculous, raise Lazarus from the dead. They want that power harnessed. They want him to be the king that's going to come in and fight their battle, do their bidding, do what they want, be their kind of guy, Chuck Norris. And so all these people that want Jesus to be the king they want him to be. They're waving palm branches. But what's that about? Well, the palm was the national symbol of ancient Israel. Let me show you a couple of coins that uh, come from. Um, the, the one on the left is uh, uh, a coin of when Judah had been taken captive. And you notice what's in the middle of the the one standing over the slave is the what? The palm branch. Here's a copper coin on the right that is from the first century. It's incredibly corroded because it's copper. And what do you notice is the only symbol on it? It's a palm branch because that was the national symbol. In other words, they're waving the national. These are nationalists. These are Israel's everything. These are the people who are saying, come be the king. We need to get our way. Not that anybody today is screaming the same thing. (laughs) 
John chapter 6 is kind of a key to all this. Look at verse 14 and 15 with me. It'll be on the screen. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, after he fed the miraculous amount of people, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. We don't have a problem with that statement, but look at verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and to do what? Make him king by force. Withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They want to impose on Jesus their agenda. And John doesn't miss a trick in all this. When crowds begin yelling, King, save us. That was routine in the ancient world because they were looking for someone that could come beat the bully Roman Empire and set them free. Not free from their sin and their struggle, but free from their oppressor. So what's really going on with the triumphal emperor in entry? Well, in their day, a general or an emperor would go out to battle, and if he came back victorious, he would come back into town and he would enter through what was called a triumphal entryway or a triumphal arch. Matter of fact, there are 51 of these types of arches left in the world. Here's a couple of them. The first one is the Arch of Titus. And then the next one is the Arch. Oh, that's the, uh, that's the little detail. It is all the people that have been taken captive marching victorious towards home. It's a sign of the conquering king. The next one is the Ark of Trajan. And they would come and and come right through. And then the next one is the Arch of Constantine from about, from the 300s. So what's that all about? Well, the opponents are questioning whether or not Jesus is a king. The fans are saying, yes, yes, he's our king. We're going to go after the Romans. The followers, though, know Jesus is about the cross. The fans want Jesus on their terms. And in chapter 12, we see Jesus is not a king on our terms. He's a dying king. The story John tells is not about the Messiah coming to die. It's about the king who is crucified. John tells us plainly that he is, in fact, a king. Look at the way that he represents him. In John chapter 19, verse 3, And they went up again, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face soldiers. John 19, 5, when Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, kingly attire, even though they're mocking him, Pilate said to them, here is the man. 1836, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. And then 1919, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of 
the Jews. Jesus is a king on his way to the cross to die for his people. That's not what they want. They want one they can order around, they can manipulate, they can get what they want. Can we just all raise our hand and say, you know what, that's probably a lot of what I... I tend to like Jesus when it's convenient or when I think I'm in trouble and I need him to come and rescue me. And so we cry out, oh God, save me, oh God, save me. What is he saving us from? From our own mess? Yeah. And he's gracious like that. Jesus' throne is not a cathedral or a temple. It's a beam of wood. John wants us to ask, am I a fan? Hanging out on the periphery, buying the t-shirt? What would Jesus do until I think he ought to cuss that guy in front of me out, run him off the road? Or are we followers that say, wherever you go, I'm going. Because you're the king. You see, the danger is is to enjoy the spectacle that surrounds Jesus, but not be a follower. And all this that John has been showing us is funneling us to this thought, am I a fan? Am I an opponent? Or am I a follower? And boy, isn't that like, why'd you have to kick me in the teeth right now? Because that's the question. I mean, are we fans? Are we rah-rah Jesus until? Hey, last week when, when they sang that song, Raise a Hallelujah, did that not, were you here last Sunday? Did that not wreck you? That, that song was birthed out of a little boy dying. And in, and in a hard season of prayer, praying for this little boy, that song was just birthed as the guy that wrote that song was facing what he calls a giant in his life because he had despaired that that little boy was going to die, that God was not going to work a miracle, that God, and he could see the giant of fear and doubt right in front of him. And in his anguish and in his grieving and in his weeping, what came out of him was that line. I raise a hallelujah. I, I, I'm declaring praise God whichever way it goes, but the only way it's going to go is if it's your choice for it to go. Man, you think about how many situations are in our life that we face that. Hey, I, th- there's a couple, and, and I pray for a lot of couples, but there's a couple this weekend that are, some of you know my friend Joe Beam, that his whole ministry is to rescue marriage. Have people come around from around the world every weekend, go to Nashville, Tennessee, and for three days, he and his team try to speak life into marriages that are, are either mostly over, all the way over, or it's beginning to crumble. And there's a couple there that I, I, I just, oh my gosh. And I've just been praying, God, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And this morning we, we were worshiping. I was just praying, God, I just pray right now, right now, right now, that you just break down the wall of unforgiveness. Who can do that? I can't do that. Jesus isn't going to go, hey, that's my King Craig. I'm going to do what he wants. 
I mean, if it were if if he if it were like that, we would all be millionaires. But you know what I'm saying? That that's that's what we reduce God to, because you know, fans. Hey, hey, if I'm going to go spend eighty dollars on some tickets to go watch a game, I need to know what I'm getting for it. And yet there are people like Bill Mitchell who are faithful followers of the Giants who regardless of winning or losing, this morning with the three shirts he has on, one of them is San Francisco. The other one is the color of the Giants. That's a follower. That's not a fan. He is a follower. That's what I'm talking about. But see, John is asking us as we investigate, as we look at this, where are we? Are we an opponent? Are we known for our criticism, our complaints, our grumbling? Or are we known for our, I raise a hallelujah. Am I in or I'm on the edge? Am I waiting for God to do what I want? Or have I surrendered to him and said, Lord, it's what you want? Because by the way, we're going to get to that in the prayer of Jesus. You see, Jesus had to step off the throne and become a follower. Now, if that doesn't rattle all of our cages, something's wrong with all of us. That the king of the universe could have been a fan and said, well, it was nice being here, but I think I'm going back. All intact. The danger is to enjoy the spectacle, but not be a follower. Oh my goodness. You think I wanted to preach this this week? I'm like, God, can I be sick today? Because this is the question. And people will tell you how much they love Jesus, but how about let's not tell people how much we love Jesus? How about we show them we love Jesus by showing God we love Jesus? The real one, not the little figurine one, the king of the universe, the God of glory, the king who died, the one that says that I came to give you life and life abundantly, the one that we find, hey, man, it's not really convenient right now, but I'll come back to you. Man, man, John has set us up. We've loved these stories. We've loved what we're learning. And then he gets us to this point as he's closing out his public ministry. And he goes, okay, make a decision. Are you following the king as you want him or the king as he is? Oh, wow. The message of John chapter 1 through John chapter 12 is Jesus wants us to ask, are we fans? Or are we followers? And the only person can answer that is you and me. And I'll be honest with you, there's some times when I'm a fan. There's times when I'll buy the T-shirt and go, look, I got the T-shirt. I don't know why I bought the T-shirt, but I bought it. And then there are times when I'm like, God, I know there's nowhere else to go. It's you. It's you. We kind of, we kind of ride that out, don't we? And so I, I've been praying about this for, for quite some time. 
And we, we've got some amazing Bible studies that are going, but I've been, I've been praying about doing a, a 20s and 30s, and please don't come up to me and go, why didn't you include the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s? Because you know what? We're losing the 20s and 30s in this world. They're fleeing. And if we don't invest in discipling and loving and teaching, not teaching them facts, but helping them understand who he really is, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. And I don't think we're really in trouble because he's still on the throne, but we need to invest. My favorite ministry of my whole life has been college ministry when I was a college pastor. I, free entertainment out the, man, just free entertainment. But we have got to invest in discipling. And so I'm just going to throw that out there. There's no sign-up sheet yet. They're just, I just want you to pray about it. I just want you to pray about it. I want you to pray about it. I want you to pray about it. I want you to pray about it. Because that's got to be the question of my heart. Is it convenient for me? And am I only going to do what's convenient? Or am I going to say, God, whatever you're directing me to do. Whatever you're directing me to do. Um, and, and that's... That's kind of the question. So for you this morning, before we go take communion, this is the question I want you to ask. Have I bought the Jesus t-shirt? Or am I following the Jesus that leads me to the cross? Because that's a hard question. But on the other side, everything's possible. Everything's possible. So let's pray this morning. Father, I pray that uh, in some miraculous way you take these words and you bring them back into us, Lord, that they're not just words that have been scattered everywhere. But, Lord, they're, they're like a beautiful tapestry where we've been walking this journey through John's gospel, and now we're starting to realize, man, this is serious. The cross is coming. The cross is coming. The cross is coming. And yet... You haven't guilted or shamed us into anything. You just said, here I am. What kind of king do you want? Do you want one that you order around like a token, rub it three times and get your wishes? Or do you want one that can save your soul and bless your life and lead you into some dark and hard places, but not leave you there, but walk you through them when we hit the valley of the shadow of death? And so, Father, our prayer this morning is as we go to communion, Lord, for those who are stuck on the edge of fandom, Lord, I pray that they would walk in that prayer room and give up their T-shirt. And, Lord, I pray for those who have been opponents and struggling with the whole concept that they would at least kick the tires a little more and say, okay, God, what do you got for me? And, Lord, for those who are followers, that they would just keep following, be a lamp and a light, be a, a reflection of your glory in this world. And so, God, would you work beyond what we can see and know in the physical world to a place where we truly are in with you. In the name of Jesus, Lord.